Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Charles Burrell, who historians know as the Jackie Robinson of classical music for breaking the color barrier as a bassist with the Denver Symphony Orchestra in 1950 and the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra a decade later. He's a Denver legend, loved and revered by generations of both classical music and jazz enthusiasts. He played alongside many world-renowned jazz artists as well. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you very, very much. I never dreamed that it would be this popular. You deserve it after all this time. When's your birthday? October the 4th, 1920. You're a tough old bird. They say. (laughs) (laughs) You grew up in Detroit. Right, Six siblings and a fantastic mother, Denverado. The mother of all mothers. They they didn't come any better than that. You picked up the huge stand-up bass the double bass, the contrabass, in seventh grade. What were the circumstances? Oh, that was funny. I think on a Friday afternoon about 3 o'clock at the junior high, kids were all anxious to get out of school and all that sort of thing. The instructor for the music department came in. His name was Harrington. I made an announcement that I have the room there, one instrument left. No one raised their hand but me. (laughs) I think they all knew what it was, and I didn't, okay? And he took me in the room, and I looked at it, I looked in the corner, and I'll never forget. I said, my God, what is that? It looked like the monster of all monsters, a big aluminum gray base. And I looked, I said, whoa. He said, that's all we have. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> and then, of course, for quite a few years, I had to stand on a Coca-Cola box to get up to play it because it was so big on me. And that was the beginning of my experience with the bass. How did you lug that big instrument around? It wasn't easy. My mother knew that what was going on right quick. And she went to, you won't believe there's a Goodwill, and got me a, a little red wagon which she paid a quarter for. Your family acquired a crystal set, the simple radio receiver popular back in the early days of radio. Mm -hmm. And you heard something that changed your life. That fascinated me really because I was never exposed to any kind of music except what my mother used to call me the nasty blues, (laughs) which was next door to us. I mean, they played some nasty blues in those days and talked nasty. On the crystal set, I heard the marvelous San Francisco Symphony playing Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony and it was the last movement and I I was fascinated like I couldn't believe what is that After it was all over, that evening, I went to my mother, I said, Mama, that's what I'd like to do in life. I'd like to play that kind of music. 
Well, in those days, it was unheard of because of the thing that they had called racism and all that crap. But anyhow, that was the beginning of how I got associated with classical music, and it grew from there. You practiced your behind off hours a day. Just above. And I had to laugh because one of the girls came to me and says, Oh, you're practicing your ass off, aren't you, honey? And I said, Oh, Lord, please. She reached back there and she says, You don't have any buns, honey. <laughs> when I first started, I practiced two to three hours on the open string, which is a G, D, A, and E. Okay? I practiced on the G string, cold turkey. And I had to laugh. My older sister came in and said, Hey, what are you doing? Are you trying to saw wood or what? You know? <laughs> I said, wait a minute. No, I'm practicing, girl. From two hours, I was practicing three hours, and then it got up to actually seven and eight hours a day. On one string, I'd practice two hours, and they thought I was crazy. Not only was it a bass fiddle, but it was what they call a seven-eighth, and that means it was a little bigger than the average bass. The average bass is what we call three-quarter bass. Mm-hmm. Three-quarter inch, and that was a seven-eighth, and it was a biggie. But it had a nice, big sound to it, and I, I thought. Because how would I know about sound in those days? But that was the beginning of it. Dedicated, I put that way, affair for my life. And I had no idea where I was going, but I knew I was going someplace. My big thing was to play that bass. That's all I wanted to do. And my mother realized that, and she said, Well, son, if you want to do it, Make sure you give all you have to it, okay? Practice, practice, practice. There are physical requisites that great musicians are blessed with sometimes. Piano players with long fingers or brass players and woodwind players, the embouchure Mm -hmm. of the mouthpiece. For the bass, were there similar... Attributes, no. Did you have to have stronger hands? No, I had nothing in common to play the bass because... I smashed my finger so many years ago before I started playing the bass, and that was a handicap, I thought, then. But I managed to play with it all day and night and as long as I could to get it working, and it turned out to be the best thing for playing the bass because it was a fast finger. I couldn't believe that because they used to look at me and the boys would say, oh, there comes fast finger Charlie. What is this crap, you know? <laughs> so I'd laugh, well, it was, so what? But that was it, and it still was the fastest finger. Now, this is a separate part of my life where I was forced to do something that I really hadn't thought about until 25 years later. Pilfering coal, stealing coal. And that meant from somebody else. We lived right near a railroad track, a place called In the Hole, and I got injured that's how I got this finger smashed, stealing coal off the railroad. My mother taught me always have a dime ready just in case you had to go to the hospital. So I went down there and got into the emergency room. And of course, in those days, they had a bunch of idiots, I realize now, working in the ER room. Guy did my finger and it was smashed. He says, well, we'll do this. Put your hand over there on your right hand and turn your head to your left. And if you can't feel this, when I prick you with this needle, we might have to cut it off. They didn't know that I had good peripheral vision. <laughs> I could see on the side. So every time he'd punch me, I'd say, ooh. I couldn't feel a damn thing. I'm, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> ooh. 
And he said, well, buddy, you're lucky. We're going to leave that on. You won't have to operate. I said to myself, I know damn well you won't have to operate. From there, I started massaging it. I think it took two years to come around to being a natural active finger, and I've never had a bit of trouble with that, except when I put my finger up to somebody, they say, oh, here comes Fast Frank Charlie. <laughs> it is a little imposing, Charlie. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> you were enamored of the profession of classical music when you saw the Detroit Symphony. Oh, my. Playing in their tuxedos. And that was the most stellar feeling of my life when I saw them coming out on the stage with these what I call a penguin set. <laughs> nice white things and big cummerbund, black tails, elegant walking, you know, looking pride and joy. I told my mom, I said, that's what I want to be. And I, of course, I told my sisters, and they said, oh, you're full of shit. You must be crazy. I said, okay, whatever. So that was the end of that. also developed a taste for jazz. A marvelous taste for jazz, as a matter of fact. Before I really got interested in that, I didn't know who Duke Ellington was. I thought he was a real Duke. <laughs> Royalty. And was. Count Basie was Count. I said, boy, these are big shots. I didn't know who they were until someone enlightened me. said, look, are you that square mother? <laughs> I, what do you mean? He said, this is a name. They give the people an adopted name. This is not royalty. And I, that was my connection with jazz. But I realized when I was younger that I couldn't make it just playing jazz, and I couldn't make it just playing with the symphony. One of my good friends says, you got to have more than one application in life to make it, okay? You got to have a good daytime job to support your habit. And I did. I had three jobs for 30 years to support my habit. Wanted to be a musician. Detroit's Cass Tech High School was one of the most prestigious music schools in the nation. You yes. got accepted there? I didn't know that they had a, a quota, I'll put it that way, for who they accepted, but I went there and I enrolled and they accepted me. And I started playing the bass there, having lessons from one of the very prestigious bass players of that time, who was the principal bass player of the Detroit Symphony. His name was Gaston Brohan. Someone enlightened me and said, look, uh, Charlie, he's a good man, but he doesn't know anything about teaching, okay? It took me four years to get over the um, incorrect way he was teaching me. When he first came to me and said, I'll teach you under one condition. That is, if you never try to play classical music. And, of course, I got down with the ghetto on him. You know, we were called the ghetto routine. I said, yes, sir, boss. Yes, yes, sir, boss. I never looked at him and smiled. But inside, I said to myself, you son of a gun, you will never pull that on me. And that was the way I got in. But in the meantime, I was still studying music at Cass Tech. That's where I started playing the tuba, which in Cass Tech. So I had four years of tubas and four years of bass playing. And in Cass Tech, you had to learn all instruments, because when you came out, you were a professional. So I had to learn woodwinds, brass, drums, 
piano, and I learned all of these things at one time going through Cash Tech. There were other instructors who told you that a black kid didn't have a, a chance in orchestral work? Oh, yeah, definitely all of them. They all played the game. I knew what the game was, though. It didn't get to me. You joined the Navy oh. right before World War II? Oh, boy, that was an event. <laughs> <laughs> it was comical because I lived in Detroit on Carfield Avenue, a half-slum area. One evening, I heard the siren at the front door of the big apartment building. My brother, who I lived with, said, Chuck, you better jump out the window because I think Fuzz, Fuzz meant police, is out there. And I knew what they wanted because I was wanted for a violation of two parking tickets. They're going to come and get me. They said four detectives. And I beat them and jumped out the window. It was a second-story window. Those days, you were pretty active. You jump out of anything, not to be caught. The next day, I went down and registered to get in the Navy, and they gave me the runaround. Said, come back in a couple weeks, okay? So I think it took me two months hiding here and there from the police in Detroit until I got to the window of where you, one of the first ones that inducted into the Navy there. Same fuzz or detectives saw me on the street and they pulled their car right in front of me and jumped out like I had murdered somebody. And of course I knew better than to reject because if you did, they'd kill you. Said, we're gonna arrest you for such and such. I said, I don't, not today. He said, what do you mean? I said, because look. And I showed him the inductee thing. I was in the Navy, and they couldn't touch me. I never forget the guy on the one of the big fat police. said, oh, shit. <laughs> we lost on this bastard again. I said, <laughs> episodes happen like that, though. You were stationed at Small. Camp Robert Small mm-hmm. outside of Chicago, selected to play with a newly created all-black Navy band. Oh, yes, that, the only black Navy band that there was. Mm-hmm. When I first was inducted, they took us up on a speed train from Detroit to Chicago, up to Great Lakes. They marched us out across the campus on a dirt road, and they had an open truck, very dilapidated-looking truck. You wouldn't put on a heat file. It was so bad. And they loaded all the black band on that. And by all means, Clark Terry, who was a trumpet player from St. Louis, and that's where I met him. But anyhow, that's the beginning of how I got to Great Lakes was on Camp Robert Small. They didn't have a camp then. They had to build it. And you served for four years? Four and a half years, yes. Mm-hmm. Afterwards, you used the GI Bill to mm-hmm. attend Wayne State University in Detroit. Yep. Again, you kicked ass academically, but you were oh. told that you would never get a job teaching music, which is what most alumni did. When I got to graduate, the teacher who was over the head of the department, called me in to have a serious talk. So he said, here, blah, 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 congratulations and all this sort of thing, but he's 40 years old, okay? He says, as long as I'm administrator of the public school system in Detroit, there'll be no blacks in the system. And of course, you don't know the words I use on the breath. Ooh, I can't recite them now, but they weren't nice. And so I said, oh, okay, that's right. I'll use the old thing from the ghetto again. Yes, the boss, you son of a gun, and all that sort of thing to myself. And the next day, I got on the Greyhound bus, which in those days, they used to haul everything, pigs and everything. I got on the bus and put my base in the well underneath and all that sort of thing, and I came to Denver. It was on one of those very rustic seats called Death Seat. 
there was a pine bench all the way down on both sides, and you sat on either one side or the other. It was not the nicest ride I've ever had in my life. They were pulling splinters out of my butt, pardon me, for a week. <laughs> to Denver because your mother had relocated here to be with family a few years previous. She was born here in Denver. Her whole family was here in Denver, and they were all marvelous cooks, had good jobs cooking. One of my aunts made lunch for the men down at the bank building downtown in Denver, and that's all she did for a living. One was on, he was a chef on a train. The other two were chefs down in the Cosmopolitan Hotel, which is downtown Denver. I've noticed your appreciation for food, Charlie. Oh, I'm glad of that because I love it. (laughs) There's nothing better than food and women. In that order? Yeah, definitely. Okay. (laughs) What else? I mean, how do you do it? The old song goes, how do you do one without the other? That's the name of the game. But I had a good time doing that, too. You're in Denver. Within a few weeks, you met John Van Buskirk, the oh, bassist yeah. with the Denver Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That well, friendship paid dividends. Oh, yeah, much, very, very, very big dividends. I met John on the streetcar on Welton Street. Welton ran from Welton down to Downing, and I walked in there and I saw this case about three and a half, four foot long. I recognized it as a case for an instrument. But I went up to him and I said, pardon me, sir, what is that? He says, it's a bass case. A bass what? Bass violin bow case. I said, oh. He introduced himself, John Van Buskirk with the Denver Symphony. We started talking and he asked me how I would like to take lessons from him. I said, I'd love it. And he lived on a street called Tamarack. And I went out there for about a month, a month and a half, and had lessons. And he asked me one day, would you like to audition for the symphony? I said, I don't know about that, you know. So, But he was nice people, and his wife was a good cook. <laughs> good Italian food, as they call it, those days. And so that was a heavenly thing, because I carried my bass out there on my little red wagon. I would go way out to Aurora. Tamarack, uh-huh. and finally he arranged an audition with me to appear before Saul Caston, who was the conductor then of the Denver Symphony. I was delighted to have been chosen for the fact that I didn't know what I was going to do anyhow, so uh, it was no big thrill to me, but it didn't hurt me because I wasn't afraid of it. I didn't know what it entailed. And to my surprise on this audition with Saul Caston, he invited me over and he talked for one hour and 55 minutes. I knew what he was doing. He was picking my brain to see if I was all right, if I didn't have any prejudices. The last five minutes going into two hours, he asked me to play the G scale two octaves slowly. It took me seven minutes to go up that scale, okay? Seven minutes to play this one scale slow. 
And when I got through, he looked at me and says, you're hired. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And I immediately went home and called my mom in Detroit and told her mom, I think I'm hired to be in the symphony. And my mom got on the next bus from Detroit to Denver to see me play my first performance with the symphony. She used to call me Chunky. She was kind of fat, 200 pounds. Of course, she didn't know that I would say to myself, Mom, I love you madly, but I'll never be Chunky, okay? <laughs> so we got over that hump. And you, at that point, were one of the first African-Americans to play in a nationally recognized symphony. But I didn't know all that. That was all historic finding to me. I didn't know what was going on. I just had a ball playing my instrument because every time I played, it was heavenly. Plenty of orchestras at the time took advantage of Red Rocks and the superior acoustics up there. Oh, boy. The Denver Symphony would perform a full 10-week summer schedule throughout the 50s. Do you remember when NBC broadcast a performance up there on a show called Wide Wide World? They broadcast across the country, and it was the first time a lot of people got to see our mountains and plains. Oh, yes, definitely. I was there. As a matter of fact, that same performance, they brought a singer from the Metropolitan Opera, which was the biggest in those days. I forget her name, but she was a 200-pounder. She did what we call from Wagner the role of Brunhilde, which was a big role. And they were wondering how they were going to get her up there on that rock. They finally hired a cotton picker. What, the cherry picker? Cherry picker, yeah, cotton picker. (laughs) (laughs) I can see the connection. Yeah, you can see the connection. (laughs) They hired a cherry picker to get her up there on this rock. Someone says, how are they going to get her down? I said, the way they got her up. (laughs) Almost 10 years I played up there in Red Rocks. And that, to a degree, Charlie, had to be trial by fire, even figuring out the best place to put players in the orchestra. It was was all the way. It should be noted, Red Rocks did not have a roof back then, and the weather didn't always Oh, no, 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 definitely no, no. (laughs) Crosswinds and cloud bursts and... Everything rains and... Did you ever have a score blow off the stand? Of course. I had a stand blow off. (laughs) But we had a nice time doing it. I look back now, it was wonderful. Spectacular. Just before you got to the turn that takes you up to the stage, there was a museum across the street which loved musicians, and they used to give us free hot dogs. The food thing again, Charlie. They kind of had me. I said, boy, thank you, thank you, you know. (laughs) You alluded to the three jobs Mm -hmm. that you had outside of playing music, Charlie. One was as an orderly at Fitzsimmons Hospital. Oh, boy, that was another food job. (laughs) Uh One of your relatives told me that you stained the wooden seats at Red Rocks. I didn't stain them, I painted them. All 9,000 seats? But that was my end to my other job, because a fellow who was the head of the Department of Recreation, whose name was Tom Seymour, I went to him and said, Tom, I need some kind of job to feed my family. And he came back in a couple days and said, look, I have just a job for you. Could you paint red rocks? And so I went up there with my 1936 green Dodge four-door car with 
50 gallons of linseed oil and five brushes. And I started painting, and I think it took me about six or eight weeks to paint. But I did a thorough job. I was not going to let be outdone and just paint the tops. I painted the tops, the sides, and the bottoms. And, of course, my car was nothing but a, a maze of smell from that. It smelled like linseed oil. It took me six months to get that out of my system. But that was my affair with Red Rocks for a, a summer job. You worked at Stapleton Airport? Oh, yes. I had the pleasure of being out there for five years as Skycap, and that's where I got my gloriously financial beginning. I mean glorious because I used to make, uh, listen to this, $150 a day clear without Uncle Sam knowing that we did it. It's the cliche how scary it is to see someone with gifted hands put at risk with manual labor. I had a more gifted stomach. (laughs) Okay. Your musical life, you were in the Anglo-classical world, and you've said that your fellow African-Americans weren't necessarily supportive. Pretty mildly. Yeah? They called me names. I couldn't even begin to... Well, they said I was a such and such lover that could never make it. A white man's nigger and all that sort of thing. Oh, they went on and on and on. And even my poor aunt, as lovely as she was and what a marvelous cook, when she would introduce me to people, she said, I'd like you to meet my nephew, listen to this, who plays with the Denver Sympathy Band. Ooh. That was a real crucial hurt. I got away from her in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. Some nights you'd play with the symphony and mm-hmm. then take off your tuxedo and put on your peg pants and go down to Five Points in Denver. Oh, to yes. Play jazz. All the regular jazz night spots, the Playboy Club on Colfax. Of course, we opened that up. We were there first before it became nationally popular. We were there with the first integrated combo featuring L.D. Al Rose, piano, and Lee Arlano, Chicano, and who else? So it was the first mixed trio in Denver. As a matter of fact, in Colorado. The Piano Lounge? That was magnificent, too. 15th and Curtis, the bandbox was on Colfax in St. Paul. Of course, I was the first one to open the bandbox. Lil's After Hours? That was the only after, real After Hours, recognized After Hours joint. Mm-hmm. And defining After Hours at the time? After it? two, two to four, and sometimes a little later. And there was nothing on Sunday to run to two to six and go down to the train depot and have a breakfast from six till ten food again. (laughs) You played with every notable jazz personage who came through Denver. You were first call. You could not only play, but you could read music. That was my end. You backed up Billie Holiday? Yes, definitely. You look at me and smile, I'll understand. Then in a little while, he'll take my hand. And though it seems absurd, that was a special night, though. Extremely special because that was at a nightclub called Charlie O's, which is right across from the Brown Palace, was upstairs. I was there playing with a little trio, and she came to sing that one night. She was four hours late because she had to have her fix. So she finally got there, and, and that was my idol in those days. And I was young and flippy and all that sort of thing. She started singing, I fell in love with you. And looked at me, and I peed on myself. 
I didn't urinate. I peed, baby. You know? <laughs> and uh, the piano player said, Charlie, did you have an accident? I said, I think I had a hurricane, baby. You know? <laughs> but that was my introduction to knowing Billy Holiday. aforementioned heroes, Duke Ellington. I knew him under uh, different circumstances, but it was not quite that pleasant because I went down in Detroit then. I went down there to have an audition for Duke Ellington. I knew better than that. I was that good a bass player in the first place. You know, and I knew nothing about jazz. Anyhow, he sicked me down to Billy Strayhorn, who people have heard of, was his nemesis, and had Billy take me down to the basement and give me an audition with a piano that had half the keys missing and it had never been tuned. One key sounded like every key. And after about 10 minutes, I said, look, you expect me to play something with that? And Billy Horn said, oh, that was it. That was my introduction to Duke Ellington. Yikes. Charlie Parker. have an intersection oh intersection is right <laughs> oh yeah this was a real laugh for a minute after all played at lills after our joint on saturday night the charlie parker came in and had his sax with him he didn't ask to play he just said i'm gonna sit in because he was so famous you didn't question him so he got up on the stand sat in a chair with his elbow sax on his lap for two hours and i didn't play a damn note he slept he was knocked out. He had his heroin yeah. fixed, and he was just completely gassed out. He didn't even wake up for two hours straight. Someone said, did you ever play with Charlie Parker? I says, no, we played in back of Charlie Parker, <laughs> and that was it. When you were 40, Charlie, you fulfilled your dream of playing for the San Francisco Symphony, as heard on the crystal set back as a kid, Pierre Monteau, the famed conductor. conductor. Mm-hmm. Now that earned headlines across the country as far as you breaking the color barrier, much more so than what had happened in Denver. I didn't know anything about that until maybe a month later when someone called me and said, look, do you know that you're in the paper? What paper? And I saw this big article in the whole page. I couldn't believe it. And that was the end of that for me because it didn't mean a thing. I said, look, so what? I went and I saw and I conquered and that was it. Okay. Mm-hmm. You did become a professor at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. You got to mentor your cousin? Yeah, George, George Duke. Duke. I call him the monster musician of all musicians of my life because he was so good. One of the best I had ever encountered. And I had the pleasure of teaching him for five years. And he's the first one to admit that I did do something for him.
After five years in San Francisco, you kind of got rattled, literally. Kind of is putting it softly. I got bombed. One day we had an earthquake, 6.7, okay? It collapsed a bridge, which was a mile from where I was staying. And I said, well, I think that's about the end of what I had to do in San Francisco. <laughs> so I packed my base up and got on the next plane that I could came back to Denver. Within a day, right? Yeah, within a day, like I had some sense. <laughs> so The Denver Symphony Orchestra hired you back immediately. Oh, yes. And you played in Denver over the next three decades with the symphony and at the jazz clubs. You retired with the symphony, the Colorado Symphony Orchestra yes. by then. Yes, and I didn't retire, I quit. You and, quit in 1990. Yeah, there's a difference there. I'd had enough of being racially, hmm, singled out, okay, in the soft way they thought, but it was not soft to me. I recognized what was going on. One of the drummers in the orchestra had the audacity to refer to me as one of those fellers, the word in, and I happened to hear him after the morning performance. I met him at the stage door, and I was smart enough to know that you don't do that on the property because they could handle you. So it was on the sidewalks. So I grabbed him outside in his collar and I read the riot act to him. Okay. The Negro riot act to him like your mother and your daddy and your sister, your brother, your aunts and your uncles. And he got the message. So that was the end of that. You mentored your niece, Diane Reeves, the Grammy winning jazz vocalist. You groomed her for a singing career, but you told me once you also coached her in terms of temperament. I took her underhand for four years and exposed her to everything, to the Brown Palace, Cosmopolitan, Navarre, and all the big places, and even down to Colorado Springs where she appeared with Dick Gibson and his big band at the Broadmoor when the first blacks to appear there. So I exposed her to all those things and all over the years because she had the voice, you know, just natural voice, because when she was only three years old, she couldn't talk, but she could sing. They asked me about how to make her a better singer. I told her to get some Sarah Vaughan records, and she did, and the rest is history. One of the greatest since Ella Fitzgerald. You have two signatures. You always used to wear one of your cuffly caps from London. Oh, yes, definitely. How, how were you introduced to that bit of apparel? One of my good friends came in one night. I was playing in one of the joints. He got excited and started dancing around. And he dropped his cap, and it happened to be a cuffly. I picked it up, and it fit. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't look back. <laughs> And you always puffed away on one of your Robusto cigars. Oh, magnificent. Before that, that was the Cuban cigars from Cuba. It was about eight inches long and about a foot wide around. <laughs> and you could smoke it all day, put it down in the evening, a little snub, and pick it up in the morning and put a toothpick in it and get a morning Hicks. Cuban cigars. That was in those days, but not now. Now I'm smoking the okay. Dominican Republicans. Mm -hmm. All right, Charlie, what's your favorite musician's joke? It was Clark Terry, the Clark 
Terry, I met him with, we used to rehearse in what we call the washroom in the Navy. That's where you wash your clothes, you know, civvies and so forth. It was a big, long room, and he used to practice in one end with his mute of the hall, and I practiced in the other end in our skivvies with a mute in the bass. And we do that for days and months at a time. That was when I first met him. But the big thing about him was the fact that my then wife, first wife, knew him and knew of him and wanted to invite us up for a meal, food. <laughs> we said, yes, we would like to. So we went over, and she cooked up some chili, and we ate it. Clark told us what it was. Are you trying to kill us? It was so hot. She had red pepper like you wouldn't believe. So I had to laugh, and she got the big knife out and started saying, oh, you don't like my chili? And Clark and I both jumped down the stairs, and the stairs went down and then left. We didn't even hit the bottom down there. We just went <laughs> running back to camp. And on the way, after about a mile, Clark stopped and said, look, Charlie, are you sure she wasn't trying to kill us? I said, I don't think so, but boy, that was some hot chili. <laughs> The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support from music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org. C O L O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder based, vertically integrated, consumer focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.